Mike didn't tell you that <clears throat> none of those scientific papers were actually accepted for publication. Um, tell you three things about Igloo, South Dakota. Most people don't, uh, when they introduce me, don't tell people where I'm from, but three things you, you, you want to know about Igloo that you probably don't know. Number one, the town no longer exists. Uh, it was an Army Ordnance Depot, got closed down, and, and nobody lives there anymore. Number two, shortly after it was closed down, there were some entrepreneurs who tried to turn it into a pig farm. Um, it failed miserably. Number three, after the pig farm debacle, as, as it came to be known, um, it was... Uh, had another group of entrepreneurs who tried to make it into the National Nuclear Waste Dump Site. And it also failed at that. <laughs> what may truly be said, can any good thing come from Igloo? <laughs> Guys, Winston has chosen for the topic by faith, the men of old gained approval. And I remember as a younger man looking at Hebrews chapter 11 and saying to myself, man, I, I wish I could have been Noah. I wish I could have been tapped by God to do, some, do something that cool. Or Abraham. I mean, unbelievable. What about Moses? How great would it have been to be those guys? And I used to despair because I thought to myself, I'm not sure there's, there's really any new worlds to conquer. I'm not sure that there's anything that big out there. But I think, guys, that as I have understood a little better than I did when I was younger what the program of God is about, that Jesus has thrown a gauntlet at the feet of each guy sitting here, and that he has asked each guy sitting here to do the equal of building an ark before it ever rained, of crossing through the Red Sea on dry land. You and I are given a task equal to what those men were asked to do. And I would like to start our discussion in Revelation chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. And I'd like to enlist your help. Uh, if I could get someone to read for me, please. And when you do, grab the microphone so it gets onto the recording. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. I know there's plenty of bold guys out here. I listen to you pepper Walt with stuff, so don't be bashful. Grab that microphone. Number two. 
And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Thank you. One more verse, I believe, is there not? And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Thank you. Notice that in John's description of what is about to take place, that the elder says to him, there's a lion coming. And he's going to do this thing. But instead of meeting a lion, we meet a lamb. And not just any lamb, but a lamb standing as if slain. There's an eternal truth that the apostle is teaching us here. And guys, that is that obedience and humility always precede Praise and power. That is an immutable law of the universe. Yes. Obedience and humility always precede praise and power. It was so for Jesus... It is so for you and I. Chapter 5 of Revelation is the pivotal chapter in the book. Remove Revelation chapter 5 and you have no book of Revelation. Because what ensues as a result of the Lamb being able to break the seals is the judgment of the world. Men, I would like to draw your attention to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That what is being said of you and I in Romans 12.1 is precisely 
the description of Jesus in Revelation 5. He is a lamb standing as if slain. We are living sacrifices. Sacrifices are dead. You and I are called to the same paradox of being a lamb standing as if slain. And men, I suggest to you that that call of God in your life and mine is tantamount, is equal to being asked to build an ark before it rains. It is equal to being asked to cross the Red Sea on dry land. You're called to be a dead man walking. And I don't know how that looks for you all, but for me, it is the struggle of my life. It just, it is tough. Well, that's not the right word. It's a killer. It goes against every instinct in my body. Nonetheless, that's what we're called to. If building an ark before it rained were easy, there would have been lots of Noahs, but there's only one. It is not easy to be a living sacrifice. Several speakers now have referred to Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. And in those verses, we see the value system of the world. Intellect, power, and riches. That is the currency of being successful on planet Earth. That is the world's value system. In the language of what we're going to be discussing here this morning, I'd like to suggest to you that the world's value system, to embrace the world's value system, is to attempt to save your life. Jesus gives us a completely different value system. Someone, if you would, read Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and to those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And, and whoever desires to be the first among you, let him be your slave. 
just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Thank you. If you want to be great in the eyes of the world, get money, get power, be smart. If you want to be great in the eyes of our Lord, get on your knees and start serving. No task is too menial. No person too insignificant. You're a slave of everybody. You're the slave, they're the master. Reconciling those two value systems is where I live every day of my life. It is why I go to work and experience a pitched battle internally every day. Jesus just said such a hard thing to me. Why didn't you make it easy? Well, because it wasn't easy to build an ark before it rained. Now in Luke 9:23 and 24, Jesus addresses this issue again. And he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. There isn't a man in this room who does not desire life. We crave it. We thirst for it. We hunger for it. We claw and scratch to get it. And the world says the way to do it is power, riches, intellect. And Jesus says the way to do it is to die. Quit trying to save your life. Because I guarantee you, if you do, you will lose it. Now, this self-denial, this dying to self, is the thrust of where we're going to go the rest of the talk. Any questions, comments, discussion up to this point? Okay. There are several different components of what self-denial looks like. Component number one I would put under the heading of stewardship. Most Christians that I talk to when we talk about self-denial think of this issue. And they think of things like, well, maybe I ought to drive a Chevy instead of a Lexus. Maybe my house ought to be 2,000 square feet instead of four. Maybe I should wear pennies instead of polo. 
and so on. My thought for you is that that is merely the tip of the iceberg. That's the small potatoes. That's the easy stuff. I'd like to give you four, four suggestions with respect to stewardship, and then we'll move on. Number one, enjoy what you have, but do not love it. The things that God has given you, he's given to you for your enjoyment. There's a lot of Christian guilt out there about having things. Enjoy it. But don't love it. Don't buy a really cool car and then park it so far away that you have to hire a taxi to get you where you're trying to go. You got one of those too? Number two, if your conscience still bothers you, consider living below your means. Don't have to. But if you're worried about it, give it some thought. Number three, give everything you have back to God. By that I mean, on a regular basis, get before God and say, listen, Lord, I understand 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? I understand that. I understand everything I have is a gift. Iron zip. It's all yours. You gave it to me at your own good pleasure. And because you own it, you can take it anytime you want. So let's just, let's go down the list, God. It's my wife, my kids, my job, my reputation, my home, my car, and on and on and on. God, if, if any of those things are between you and me, take them. I don't want them. Give it back to him. He gave it to you. You didn't earn it. He gave it to you. It's his to do with what he wishes. Fourthly, be generous. I can't tell you what that looks like, but I can encourage you to get before God and find out and be generous. Now, man, that's all I have to say on the topic of stewardship. So I'm going to move on unless you all have questions or comments. Yes, sir. Number nine. just have a question of where um, uh, tithes and offerings back to the Lord fit into. Uh, number two, consider living below your means. 
uh, where do your means come in if we could all afford to give 50% to the Lord, which a lot of us can? Uh, how would you tie that in with any of the bullet items here? Yeah, I would say that <clears throat> there is no commandment in the New Testament to tithe or to really give us any quantitative indication of what our giving to the Lord ought to look like. So every guy stands looking at two extremes. On the one extreme, I keep it all for myself. On the other extreme, I give it all away. And the New Testament makes absolutely no attempt to try and show you what what the difference looks like. It's up to you. And that that is precisely the design of God. He did that on purpose. You have to, as an act of faith, figure out what that looks like. Totally up to you. If it's if it's true stewardship, it all belongs to him. So he sounds like he's really not interested that it's exactly ten percent or fifty. It all belongs to him anyway. And if our heart really has given it over to him, it's really no it's no longer an issue. Yeah, I have uh, the theory is so great. It's the practice that I have trouble with. <laughs> just, just a thought about that. I know for me, we were talking around our cabin last night that, you know, e- even if there are some areas that we don't struggle in where we want material things, security a lot of times is is the bottom issue. It's easy for me to live below my means and stick the rest in the bank for a rainy day. It's a lot more difficult for me to live below my means and give the rest to the Lord or give a car to the church or something. So that's where I was trying to tie that together is at what point living below your means are we saying that maybe we give a little bit more to the Lord and he's convicted us. And Of course, some people are more gifted in that area as well. But I know for me that's the hard part is given up the security of the retirement account for the present-day needs of another person. Yeah. Yeah, and again, I, I can't give you the guidelines for deciding where I'm being a good steward with that money vis-a-vis taking care of my family or, on the other hand, being a generous man and, and giving back to God. I don't have one smart thing to say about it. A friend of mine said that the trouble with the living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. <laughs> your, your friend's reading my mail. Yeah. That is exactly where I live. I, I love the idea of being thought of as a servant. I just hate the idea of being treated like one. (laughs) Again, my theory and my practice. 
make me nervous. Any other thoughts or discussion on uh, on this topic before we move on? Okay. Dying to self. Someone read for me Matthew 10, verses 37 to 39. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I doubt that there is a man in this room who would not say, yeah, Jesus is my highest allegiance. I love him more than I love my wife. I love him more than I love my kids. I love him more than I love my parents. So what's the point? Where's he going with that? Men, as I watch the Christian community go through its daily exercises. The place where I see this passage come to bear is in the exercise of church discipline. A man has a daughter who's fornicating. He goes to her and she refuses to repent, remains in her sin, and he refuses to break fellowship with her in clear violation of Matthew 18. Because he says to himself, what Jesus wants me to love, that's a violation of love to do something that mean. And that's a great rationalization, but let me suggest to you that Jesus has another interpretation. His interpretation is, Friend, you love your daughter more than you love me. You are not willing to do what I have so clearly commanded you to do because you love her more than you love me. Don't be guilty of that one. Don't do that. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Right here, number 5. Number 5 is writing. Someone got Philippians 2, 3 and 4? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 
so Jesus says, on the one hand, all your relationships are subordinate. But on the other hand, all your relationships are superior. That is, every relationship is subordinate to your relationship with me. But every person in your life is more important than you are. Treat them accordingly. What do you do, guys, when you come home from a hard day's work and you are exhausted? And those little kids say, come on, Dad, let's roughhouse. Or you walk through that same door having had that same kind of day where you just got beat up, busted your chops, and your wife says, sweetheart, we got to talk. Or at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, you're running on three, four hours of sleep the last couple weeks, and at 3 o'clock the phone rings, and you've got a buddy who's emotionally hemorrhaging. He's dying in a heap. Can I talk? We've we got to talk. Who's more important, you or him? Who's more important, you or your wife? Who's more important, you or your child? Now, guys, that is at the very heart of what dying to self is about. What do you do when every fiber of your body says, save your life? Get the sleep. Forget the roughhousing. Watch the tube. Woman, I don't want to talk. I want food. <laughs> Having made every mistake that is possible in a marriage, I have made that one. <laughs> the miracle is that I'm here to tell you about it. A lot of crow. <laughs> that is the problem. Am I convinced in my heart of hearts that I am best served by voting against myself and for them? And you find out when you vote with your feet. You find out what you really believe about that. Number three, your wife. Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. Someone please. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Husbands, love your wives. I get that far and I say, piece of cake. Married the best woman on the planet. Slam dunk. Love her like Christ loved you. Mm. I haven't died for her just yet. I haven't really laid down my life for her. God, why'd you put the bar that high? Come on. Oh, and by the way, as you're dying for her, I want you to wash her. I want you to sanctify her. That is, her spirituality, her godliness is laid at my feet. God charges me with the discharge of that responsibility. What do men see when they look at your wife? Do they see a great little decorator? Snappy dresser? Good entertainer? Or do they see a godly woman? And men, that is your responsibility. If you are not actively seeking your wife's growth and you are out there in the marketplace making disciples, quit it. Your wife gets first dibs and your kids get second. Then you can think about going out there. But she is uniquely yours. And God will hold you accountable. Not all that hard to get praise out there in the marketplace as you minister for the cause of Christ. And guys say, oh, Dude, man, you led those guys to Christ. That was so cool. You are a spiritual stud. You are so impressive. But stay home and minister to your wife. And who comes and says to you, dude, you're a spiritual stud? Nobody but Jesus. You better be convinced that this is true or you'll never execute it because all the glory is somewhere else. Questions? Comments? Thoughts? Por favor. I just have one comment. Fifteen. I have a very godly wife and haven't been with me in the horse business for over 45 years. A couple of years ago, I almost lost her in a bad horse wreck. They wouldn't let me into the emergency room to see her. 
and I realized how close I was to come to lose her. And it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. I'm in the same shape you are. You know, in some cultures, when the husband dies, they throw the living wife on top of the funeral pyre. When my wife dies, if she beats me to the punch, I'll, I'll go jump on the pile. Any other questions or comments? Fourthly, your career. Second Peter 3, 10 to 13. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heaven the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall mount with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heaven and new earth, where indwelleth righteousness. Yeah, God thinks so highly of what you do that he's going to torch it. All those sleepless nights worrying about a deal or worrying about this thing or that, all that toil, all that labor, all that emotional expenditure of energy, God says, smoke. Now, guys, if you can handle it, the truth about your career gets even worse. Someone read for us Ecclesiastes 4.4. 4. And I saw that all labor and all achievement sprang from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Not only is God going to torch what I do, every day I go to work, I'm playing with weapons-grade plutonium. I'm not a great theologian, but that verse doesn't sound like a good thing. Everything is out of competition, says Solomon. Guys, you may look at your, your vocation and say, well, that's not true of me. 
But let me remind you that it is not your opinion or my opinion that matters, but this is what God views it as. This is how he looks at it. You're competing. And you're going to get on the backside of God in doing it. Are you giving your life for this thing that God is going to torch? For this thing that he forbids you to do? And then after he's done talking to you about what you did with your job, he'll say something like, I gave you some eternal resources, your wife, kids, other people. Tell me how it is you felt so free to expend all that time and energy on this stuff that I told you had no worth at the neglect of this that had infinite worth. Why did you feel so free to do that? I hope, I hope, I hope I don't have that conversation. But it stops me cold in my tracks. Questions or comments? Uh, how would you reconcile Colossians 3 kind of in a career standpoint that talks about doing your work heartily unto the Lord and we'll get a reward if we do it well? How would you reconcile that with what you just said? Yeah. Yeah, I think the <clears throat> my understanding of what he is, what Paul is writing there in Colossians is that I have to understand my career in its totality of my life. That is... My life is not about making money. My vocation, as, as Walt and others have pointed out ad infinitum, is for the purpose of ministry. Not only that, I am a steward of every resource, of which my career is simply a small slice. So I have to steward it before God in light of all of the rest of what is going on in my life. For example, my family, friends, etc. Now, yes. Yes. So, why do I try to do well in what I do? And I would suggest to you that there are two reasons. Number one, because as you say here in Colossians 3, I'm answerable to God for how I did it. And number two, you gain credibility to the unbelievers. If I'm a, a really crummy dermatologist, I don't know straight up, and everybody knows it, and I start talking to my residents and faculty members about Jesus, they're going to think to themselves, well, the bonehead doesn't know anything about dermatology. What, 
why should I entrust him to this, you know? So I gained credibility. Other questions or comments? Now, guys, I have deliberately omitted in this discussion the keeping of the commandments. But that, that is part of dying to self, a very major part of dying to self, as a matter of fact. I assume that you agree with me that the keeping of the commandments are non-negotiable. I cannot commit adultery with that little honey that I want to. I cannot cheat on my taxes because that's stealing. Now, I may want to do both of those things. I simply have to say no. I have to die to my own will and say, God, yeah, you know better than I do about that. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll avoid those things. So the keeping of the commandments is right smack dab in the middle of all this, but I assume it as a given. There is no wiggle room with the commandments. Ready to move on? How do I obtain the mindset that we're talking about? How do I become a man who says, I will not embrace the value system of the world, and I will embrace the value system of God? Pain, men, pain. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not only that, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. All discipline seems for the moment not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Pain snaps us back to reality. You're living in a world of illusion most of the time. I assume most of you are familiar with the fairy tale, The Emperor's New Clothes, where the, uh, these uh, tailors come along and they weave these special clothes and they're special because they can only be seen by the very intelligent. And, of course, there's no clothes at all, but it takes a little boy to point that out. The emperor has no clothes. Guys, the world has no clothes. The promises of the world are empty. We live in a world of illusion wherein we convince ourselves that we're doing something important. We convince ourselves that money, power, intellect, 
are important. That is nakedness. That is of absolutely no value to God. And pain snaps you back. It's as though it breaks a spell. Oh, yeah. Now I remember now. It wakes you up. Number two, count the cost. It's a lengthy passage in Luke 14. If someone would read that for us quickly. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who doesn't give up all his possessions, his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. You businessmen have a game plan. You sat down, you gave it thought, and you're in the process of executing it. Jesus is suggesting exactly that same thing here. What do you really want out of life? What do you want to be said at your funeral? Or, better question yet, what do you want God to say when you stand before him? Have you sat down, done the math, formulated a plan, so that when you get there, he says, well done, good and faithful servant? Have you given that five seconds of thought? Do you know how you're going to get there? Count the cost. And guys, the cost, whether you do it or not, is your life. 
There is nobody sitting in this room who's getting better and better. We're all in the process of dying. And you will spend a whole lot more time dead than you will alive. Live and plan accordingly. Proverbs 4, 7 says, The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all that you're acquiring, get understanding. All he's saying there is, figure out what you want and go get it. Are you in the business of acquiring godliness? Are you in the business of pursuing God with your whole heart? Number three, surround yourself with godly men. Proverbs 27:17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Are there guys in your life who are provoking you, stimulating you to godliness, to love and to good deeds? Have you actively sought them out to that purpose? And if you have them, do you run and hide from them when things aren't going so well? When your sin profile gets a little too high? Are those guys in your life? Be a student. That is simply what Romans 12.2 is saying. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You are in life to be a student. You are in life to be a learner. As has been said many times already at this conference, you're being prepared for eternity. And the promise of God is He will usher things into your life in such a way as to perfectly prepare you to that end. Nobody can mess that up. Nobody except you. How you respond to what he ushers into your life is everything. Are you learning? Are you growing? Questions or comments? a quiet room. What are the components of the mindset? How do you build that mindset? I suggest you start by understanding that life is devoid of intrinsic meaning. That is the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. For 12 chapters, he goes on saying the same thing in a different way. It's striving after wind. It's empty. 
It's futile. And men, there is purpose and meaning in life only to the extent that God pours it from the outside in. There is no intrinsic meaning. God has to give it. And unless that is a conviction of your heart, his solutions don't look so good. You will never get to the place where you will say to yourself, it is in my best interest to lose my life unless you believe that there is no intrinsic meaning. Meaning and purpose only from God, Psalm 127, 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. You're working in whiffle dust. It's vapor. It's nothingness. Unless God's in the project. A man with this mindset is convinced that God and God alone meets his needs. I used this illustration in the first group, and Winston gave me all manner of grief about it, <clears throat> but it, uh, it pales in comparison to the grief that I will get from my wife if and when she ever hears it. But uh, since it's already a matter of public record, um, I will try not to be quite the coward uh, I would like to be, and I'll tell you what I said the first time. When I got married, I understood that I was a tick. And I thought my wife was a dog. That is, I thought I would get sustenance, meaning, purpose, etc., etc. In short, I thought I would get my needs met by marrying her. To my deep, deep disappointment, I discovered that she was not a dog, but she was another tick. <laughs> and I knew I had a hugely serious problem until I understood that God says, there's only one big dog in the universe, and it's me. You want your needs met? Come to me. And don't you dare look at any of those other ticks. Don't try to get your needs met through another tick. <clears throat> Guys, that's all we are here. We're a bunch of ticks. You're kidding yourself if you believe you're self-contained. You're kidding yourself if you believe you can get your own needs met. That's part of the illusion. That's part of the emperor's new clothes. That's baloney. 
one big dog. Go to him and nobody else. Fourthly, he understands that he is unworthy. Luke 17.10 So you too, when you do all that is commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. Guys, there is a tale that comes out of the Middle East of a man traveling down a dusty road on a donkey. And in the middle of the road, he sees this little object. He's not sure what it is, but he gets off the donkey and picks it up. And it is a sparrow, and the sparrow is lying on his back with his scrawny little legs sticking up in the air. The guy thinks the sparrow is dead, but the sparrow opens his eyes. The guy says to the sparrow, what in the world are you doing lying here in the middle of the road with your feet up in the air? The sparrow says, well, rumor has it that the sky is falling. And I was just trying to hold it up. The guy shakes his head and says, you've got to be kidding me. You can't hold the sky up with those skinny little legs of yours. The sparrow says, well... One does what he can. Now, men, you and I are that little sparrow lying in the middle of the road with our skinny little legs up trying to hold up the sky. That's what you bring to your, your relationship with God. That's how much he needs you. If you get used by God, that is grace plus zip. He's not impressed with your intellect. He's not impressed with the power you wield. And he is not impressed with your money. He's not impressed with your spiritual giftedness. And he needs none of the above. He gave them all to you. And he did so for his good pleasure. You bring nothing to the plate. Finally, the, or fifthly, the man who acts in this manner understands that God rewards. Joel 2.25 is an interesting passage. The book of Joel is a rather dark and morbid book because God is basically telling Israel their shortcomings. And he's not pulling punches. And he's telling them what he's going to do in light of how they've treated him. And in chapter 2, one of the things that he's going to do is send this plague of locusts to devour the land. And then right there in verse 25, just out of the blue, someone got Joel 2.25? 
then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. I will make up to you. Not an incredible statement. God calls men to make sacrifices. And he follows up and says, and I'll make it up to you. I'll make it up to you. The payoff is way better than the cost. Guys, the, one of the hallmarks of God is this quality. He knows how to make up to men. He knows how to give back that which has been taken away. Now I believe that with all my heart that that will take place in heaven. And though I do not see a promise in scripture where he says he will do that on earth, I cannot tell you how many men I've seen exactly that happen to. A guy makes some sort of sacrifice, feels quasi-spiritual about it, and God circles back and makes up to him in a way he could never have anticipated. That's how he is. That's who he is. Sixthly, he aspires to greatness. This track is not for the faint-hearted. It is not for guys who desire mediocrity. You will only run this track if greatness sounds good to you. Because it will cost. Let me leave you with one final thought. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And what he is saying to us is, men, here's currency. Not currency for planet Earth, currency for heaven. This is how you'll spend in heaven. Now the greatest is love, so if you'll allow me some license... Maybe faith is a five spot. Hope is a ten. Love's a twenty. I'm greedy. I want big bills. Twenty's not that big. How do you get the big ones, God? Are there anything, is there anything bigger than a twenty out there? Yeah, there is. John fifteen thirteen. Greater love. Okay, now we're talking about love again, but we're not talking about just any old love, but the greatest love. This is as good as it gets. Greater love has no man than this that he laid out his life for his friends. That's what a C-note looks like in heaven. Have you spent your life 
dying and living for your friends? Have you given your life for them as a voluntary act of your will because you reject the value system of the world? Let me remind you what Walt pointed out to us from Matthew 6. You cannot serve God and mammon. I would have been so much more comfortable if Jesus had simply said, well, if you have your priorities right, yeah, if you have God first, you can have money second. That's cool. He just didn't give us that option. He says, make no mistake about it, you are serving one or the other. Pick. And these words for me are, they cut me right to the quick. They make me very nervous. But it, my nervousness about it, my fear about it, is nothing compared to what I will feel when I stand before him and I have not stewarded this properly. Imagine the stark terror in your heart when the sovereign of the universe says to you, you gave your life for wood, hay, and straw. May it never be so among us. Let me close this with prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to the throne of grace because long ago, for reasons all your own, you decided that we were worth dying for. And Lord, I do not understand that. I cannot get my arms around that. But I am so grateful. Thank you. And God, I pray for myself and the men in this room that you would make us great as you count greatness. For Christ's sake.